My name is Bobby. I'm one of the pastors here at Soma Northwest. And uh, if you've been with us uh, over the last month or so, we are teaching through a series entitled Practicing the Way of Jesus. Practicing the Way of Jesus. And how we talk about that, how we talk about practicing the way of Jesus, we've broken it down into three things. It's being with Jesus becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did. Being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, doing what Jesus did. And very simply, that is what it means to be a disciple or an apprentice of Jesus. And really, that's the invitation of the Christian life, isn't it? It's not to just do a bunch of things and go to church and say the right things. It's to follow a person. It's to follow Jesus. You know, when Jesus began his public ministry, what was his invitation? Follow me. Come follow me. Come be with me. Come become like me and be transformed by me. Come watch me do things and do those things. Let me change your life. And that's really what we've been talking about here in practicing the way of Jesus. It's becoming people that look like Jesus, being transformed, being changed by Jesus. And I mentioned this last week. We, we, we talked a little bit about it last week. But uh, if you grew up in like the mid to late 90s, do you remember the WWJD craze? The what would Jesus do? I know some of you are too young to remember that. I mean, that was like my middle school, high school years. And it was all marked by these bracelets that people would wear. You could get them at any Christian bookstore. And I mean, those of you, please, you know, back me up on it. Like, this was a big thing. Like, if you were a Christian in the mid-90s, like, this was a big thing. Like, you saw athletes, like, professional athletes, like, wearing the WWJD bracelets or, like, riding it with a Sharpie, like, on their shoes or whatever. You know, people had, like, it was this whole marketing campaign. You could get T-shirts and, like, covers for your Bible. Like, people used to have those. Like, you know, you couldn't let your Bible touch anything without a cover on it to protect it because it was so holy, you know. And so we had these Bible covers with WWJD. But the whole premise of this was asking ourselves the question, in these different circumstances that we would encounter, decisions and choices that would Jesus, what would Jesus do, right? What would Jesus do? And this was not something that was thought up in the 90s. This came out of a book that was actually written in the late 1800s called In His Steps. And it was, it was a novel. It was a Christian novel written by a minister named Charles Sheldon. And the whole premise of this novel, it was, it was kind of a, an autobiographical novel of this, this pastor that was pastoring and ministering in this really prosperous, successful church. But through a series of just really catastrophic events, painful events in his life, he came to realize that his life looked very different. Even as a pastor of a really successful church, his life did not look like the life of Jesus. And so he began and made a vow to himself to live his life 
with the question, what would Jesus do? And the title of the novel, literally like walking in the steps of Jesus, that his life would be in lockstep with the life of Jesus. And he challenged his congregation to do the same thing. And this novel is about the transformation that happened like you would expect you know, in people's lives and all these awesome things, miracles happening, like the people getting saved and just transformation of the city that they were in and all of these things. And so this WWJD craze kind of played off of this book that was written 100 years ago. But the only problem with it is this. It's not how the Bible teaches us to live. It's not how the Bible teaches us to live. Instead, what we read in the pages of Scripture is not to live asking ourselves the question, what would Jesus do in this moment or with this decision or in this relationship or going through this circumstance? What the Bible teaches us is not to ask, what would Jesus do, but instead to ask, how did Jesus do what Jesus did? How did Jesus do what Jesus did. And this morning I want to look at a passage of scripture in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. How did Jesus do what Jesus did? And the answer is Jesus did what Jesus did through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus did what Jesus did. The way that he lived, the way that he lived, Jesus ministered the way that he ministered through the power of God's Spirit. So turn with me there, if you're not already there, to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And before we get to the verses that we're really going to focus on. I want to give you some background in this passage. This is the Apostle Paul writing to a group of Christians living in the city of Corinth. And Paul is going to refer back to a time that we can find in Exodus chapter 34. The book of Exodus is a history book of of the Old Testament people of God, the Israelite nation. We don't have time to turn there right now. But if you remember, God called a guy named Moses, who was leading his people at that juncture in history, to come up to a mountain, Mount Sinai, and receive something from God himself. And if you've read that story, you remember that, that the Israelites made their camp at the base of this mountain. And day and night, the top of this mountain, there was a huge thundercloud, lightning and crashes of thunder. And it represented the holiness and the glory of God's presence on that mountain. So much so that they were warned that even if they touched this mountain, they would die. God, if you read through the Old Testament, is very symbolic. Because people could not, you know, no one has ever seen the fullness of God. None of us could do that because we would die. God is so different. He is so holy. He is so other that we could not, created beings cannot be in his presence fully 
and without being consumed and just being just killed right there. We just cannot approach God in that way. But God called Moses up on this mountain, and what did he do? What did he give Moses? He gave Moses 10 commandments written on these tablets of stone. And these commandments were things that God had laid out for his people for what purpose? They weren't arbitrary things. They weren't things that God said, hey, do these 10 things and you will make your life better. They were 10 commandments that were given to God's people, commandments that they know who God was. They were 10 commandments that they were to obey, that they were to institute in their lives to help them understand who God was, that God was different from them, that God was holy, that he was perfect, and that as they did these things in their lives, they would be reminded of who God was. So God gives these commandments to Moses and says, go back down and tell the people, tell the people what they're supposed to do. Tell them that this is how they can know me. And what we read is that Moses comes down and his face is glowing because God has has allowed Moses into his presence. And again, symbolically, because Moses has gazed upon God, God has allowed Moses into that, that his face is like shining. And he approaches the people and it's it's like his face is so bright that the people have a hard time looking at him. So Moses puts a veil over his face to, so that they can actually look at him without going blind, okay? So I know that sounds kind of crazy. If you don't believe me, go back to Exodus 34, fact check me. That's what happened, okay? So that's what Paul is referring to here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Let's pick it up in verse 7. Paul says, now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, that's how, <laughs> that's how Paul refers to the Ten Commandments, a ministry of death. It's like, tell us how you really feel about those, Paul. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, so Eventually, Moses' face came back to the way it originally was. He didn't stay glowing forever. But the people saw him as a symbol and said, he's been with God. He has seen God. So we should listen to what Moses has to say. Paul says that that is coming to an end, that eventually that glory that was shown on his face ended. His face went back to how it was. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, what did the Ten Commandments do? It showed us what? We are not God. God is perfect. His people to show that God is completely other. He gave those commandments to his people to show them, you are not God, and I am. So, Paul says, for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. 
Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses us. I'll get to that in a second. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ it is taken away. What Paul's doing here is he's writing to these people in Corinth and he is comparing what used to be true with what is now true. That you used to have to know God. The only way that you could know God and truly be right with God is to obey God, is to do the things that God told you to do. And if you didn't do the things that God told you to do, which that was everybody, nobody perfectly kept that law, you had to make sacrifices. That was the whole system in the Old Testament. You had to go to the temple or the tabernacle with animals, and you had to kill these animals and sacrifice them to God as, as, as a way to say and to acknowledge, I have sinned, and I deserve death. But God, in your grace, you haven't killed me, but you've given me this picture of an animal being sacrificed to remind me that because I'm not perfect, because I haven't obeyed your law, that I live with God. Moses says that was the old covenant. That's how people used to have to live with God. But now things are different. And how much better is it now that we don't have to live under condemnation, but because Jesus came and because Jesus died, because Jesus died the death that we should have died for not being perfect, for not being God. God died so that we could forever know him. So Paul's comparing this, and he's saying, this is so much better. This is way better than what people used to experience. Picking it up in verse 15. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. What Paul is saying is that there are people that still cannot see that Jesus can make them right with God. They're still living under that old system of having to be perfect, having to make themselves right with God by their actions, having to obey God time and time and time again to feel like they have a connection with God. They have a veil. They've been blinded. They can't see that through Jesus, they don't have to live like that anymore. Verse 16, but when one turns to the Lord, what happens? That veil is removed. And Paul goes on to say, and this is where I want to camp out this morning, now the, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So Paul is telling these Christians in Corinth, you don't have to live under condemnation anymore. That when you came to Jesus, that veil 
was removed. And you can have access to God because of who Jesus is. You can know God, not because you've kept his law perfectly, but you can know God because Jesus came and died for you and then rose out of that grave for you. Now, Paul switched as the Lord. Now he's talking about God's spirit. He's referencing him as the Lord. And he says, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. When I talk about the Holy Spirit, we've talked about the Holy Spirit several times here on Sunday morning. But when we talk about the Holy Spirit, I think we can fall into a couple of different ways of thinking about the Spirit that are wrong and that are harmful. You know, you can, you can think about the Spirit as some kind of a force. You know, think of like Star Wars, you know, or like some gravitational pull towards, like when the Bible talks about God's Spirit, it's like some gravitational pull towards God, or it's some kind of like inner power that you're wielding against life. It's, it's very impersonal. But when you read the pages of Scripture, you will see that the Spirit is talked about as a person. The Spirit of God is a person. That's why Paul says, now the Lord is the Spirit. So when we talk about the Spirit, I want you to think of it in three ways. The person of God, the presence of God, and the power of God. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is with us and in us. And the Holy Spirit is God's power given and made available to us. And that's what I want to unpack with the remainder of our time here this morning. So here's our big idea. This is what I want you to get. God's power to change and presence with us is made available to us through the person of the Holy Spirit. God's power to change us, to make you into the person that he has designed you to be, the person that you really want to be, and his presence with us is made available to us through the person of his Holy Spirit. Paul says where the Spirit is, there's his presence, there is freedom, there's his power. Where the Spirit is, there is freedom. There is no more condemnation. There is no more guilt. There is no more need for perfection. There is no more being caught up and just being tossed to and fro by the the forces of this world and the circumstances that you live in. Paul says the Spirit of God who lives in you is freedom. You have freedom if the Spirit of God lives in you. And he goes on to say, and we all, not just Moses, not just Paul, not quote-unquote super spiritual people, we all, every Christian, if you are a Christian in this room, you have the person of the Holy Spirit living in you, the presence of God in you and with you, and the power of God made available to you. He says, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory 
of the Lord. And that, that phrase, beholding or looking, gazing, it has this, this idea of looking into a mirror. You know, how many of you this morning, when you got up out of bed and you got ready, you looked in a mirror? And you didn't just probably do this and just turn away. You actually looked in it to make sure that you didn't have drool crusted on your mouth, that your hair was not sticking in a direction that it shouldn't be sticking. You know, you looked in the mirror, and what did you see? You looked in it to see yourself, to see that image looking back at you. Paul says that we are beholding, that we are staring, that we are, it's like we are gazing into a mirror to see what? Not to see ourselves, but to see who? The glory of the Lord. To see God, to see God to see God, to see who he is. And Paul is using this as a metaphor of knowing Jesus. That's why we talk about being in a relationship with God, that we are looking at God, that God is inviting us because of Jesus into his presence to know him. And Paul says when we look and gaze at Jesus, when we look to know God, to be in a relationship with God, what happens? We are transformed. He says, we beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image. And that word transform in the Greek is where we get our English word metamorphosis. So think of that caterpillar, right? That ugly Little caterpillar is transformed into what? That butterfly. It takes a completely different shape. And so what Paul is saying here is that when we gaze at Jesus, when we know God, when we put ourselves in the path of Jesus, that we are transformed not into a better version of ourselves not into a receptacle of God's blessings, but we are transformed into the image of God himself. That is God's desire for you and for me, is that we look like Jesus from the inside out. Not that we jump through the hoops, not that we sit there and say, what would Jesus do in this situation? but that from the inside out, God is transforming us so that we look less like ourselves and more like him, which actually puts us in a place where we are really and fully ourselves, the people that God originally created us to be, to be people who reflect and bear his image. Paul says we are being transformed into the same image, being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, doing what Jesus did from one degree of glory to the next. Or in other words, with ever, incre ever increasing over time, that God will continue to transform us more and more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. It's a process that God's transformation happens to us 
and it will continue to happen to us. Paul wrote to the Philippians in chapter 1 that he who began a good work in you will continue it on until Jesus Christ comes back or we go to see him face to face after we die. Paul comes to the end of this chapter, and this is the climax. He said, God will transform you. God will change you from the inside out. And look at the last line. For this comes from working hard, from sticking to the plan, from willing it. No, this comes from the Spirit. No amount of hard work on your part, no amount of of strong will, no amount of commitment to change will produce the kind of transformation that God wants to do in your life. It only comes through the Spirit. I was listening to someone talk about this, and uh, I want to share what he said because I thought it was really good. He talked about, how does the Spirit do this? How does the Spirit transform us and bring us into and make us into the image of Jesus? And he talked about two things. He said the Spirit works in breakthrough moments, and the Spirit works in process moments. Breakthrough moments. A lot of us in this room have probably experienced these. Moments in our lives where change comes at once. You know, and this mostly involves uh, healing and uh, being freed from certain things. You know, freed from addiction, freed from sinful habits, freed from crippling thought patterns that just grip your mind, freed from desires or dreams for your life that are contrary to what God desires for you. Being healed. Some of you have been physically healed from ailments, healed from emotional pain and hurt that have just enslaved you for years and years and years, freed from psychological pain of of depression and and anxiety. You know, maybe you, you went to a conference and just... In that environment, God moved and the Holy Spirit moved in your life and you experienced one of those breakthrough moments at this conference. It's like my life was going this direction and through hearing the word of God preached and singing and praying, like God moved in my life and I realized like I was going in a direction that was contrary to God. And now I made the decision to go this way, like God redirected my entire life. Maybe it was people in a prayer service or after a church service or in someone's home praying over you, praying that you would be healed, praying that you would be set free. And at that moment, the Spirit of God healed you. The Spirit of God freed you. It's like on your own, reading Scripture, listening to a song, praying that changed your thinking about who God was, that changed the way that you viewed yourself. And in that moment, you finally saw, this is how God sees me. This is how God relates to me. Or this is a wrong thinking that I had towards God. In in those moments, many of us have had those where at that point, the Spirit of God comes and He enacts change. 
and you are transformed. You were going in one direction, and now you're going in the other direction. You were experiencing death, and now you're experiencing life. But the problem with a lot of these breakthrough moments, well, I shouldn't say it's a problem. The reality of these breakthrough moments is that they're rare, right? They're rare. But I think so many of us can live our lives desiring that. And expecting that, we want to live on this mountaintop of transformation and experience. And we're disappointed when that high fades, when we come back home from that conference, or when life goes back to normal. And we're like, is God still working? Is God still moving? Is God still changing me? Because the deep, deep, character change that we read so much of in Scripture doesn't often happen in those breakthrough moments. They happen in what this guy called the process moments. Because our lives are not made up of two or three or five or even ten monumentous events. But your life and my life are made up of a thousand, ten thousand, a hundred thousand little moments, right? The little things that we get up and we do every day, the ordinary things that we take for granted, the relationships that we have that we come in contact with day after day after day after day, the suffering that we experience working through conflict with people that we're close to, a commitment to following Jesus through being taught the Scriptures and and reading the Scriptures, through praying and practicing the disciplines that we talked about last week that reorient our lives, our whole person, our mind, our emotions, our, our choices. All of those things, those disciplines that reorient us back to who God is and what God desires for us. And being with people day after day, week after week. People maybe that we get tired of after a while. People that we experience conflict with. People who are so different from us. But people who push us towards and sometimes pull us along. To Jesus, right? It's those ways that God often works, that process. You remember a few weeks ago, we looked at John chapter 15. Would you turn there with me? And we've talked about this passage a lot, but I just don't think you can talk about it enough. It's something that we need to be reminded of all of the time. John chapter 15. Jesus speaking to his disciples is using this metaphor of a vine and a branch and the growth that happened. And in verse 5, Jesus tells them, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I am in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I love Jesus's absolute no confidence in us. I mean, if it were me, I would have said, like, maybe you can do some things, 
Or maybe in yourself, like, you'll be good for a little while, but Jesus doesn't even give us that. He says, apart from me, in yourself, you can't do anything. You're hopeless. You're hopeless. You cannot produce any kind of fruit. But if you abide in me, if you remain in me, Similar to what Paul says, that beholding him, looking into his face, putting yourself in the path of Jesus over and over and over again. I will produce fruit in you. And that same Sunday we looked at that, we turned over to Galatians chapter 5. If you want to turn there, you can. Galatians chapter 5. This is one of the most important passages, I think, in Scripture. Galatians chapter 5, 567. Thank you if you're using a Bible around your seat. Paul again in verse 22. He said, Jesus says, if you abide in me and I abide in you, you will bear much fruit. What kind of fruit is he talking about? Paul says here, for the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Listen, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. These are not behaviors to do. These aren't commands to obey. I mean, remember, I talked about the fact that a lot of us, we look at our lives like, I need to be more patient. I need to be more loving. I need to be more gentle. And we get up in the morning and we're excited about that. And we commit to ourselves. We make a vow to ourselves. I'm going to be patient today. And then by 9 o'clock, we've lost all will to be patient. We've, we've encountered our kids We've encountered that coworker. We've, we've hit traffic on the way to work. We have a plan, like Mike Tyson says. Everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. We have a plan. But by 9 a.m. in the morning, we get punched in the face by life. And that plan to be more patient and gentle and kind and loving, to be more humble, goes out the window. And we just revert back to our cruddy self. And we just do what we want to do. And we just react in the way that feels good and, 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 and gives us some satisfaction. Go be more loving. What is it? It's the fruit of the Spirit. Abide in Jesus. Know that the Spirit produces these things in our lives. And it doesn't happen overnight. It happens by day after day after day. Putting ourselves in the path of Jesus. Day after day after day after day. Trusting in him. That he will produce these things in our lives. You might hear that and you're like, that sounds great, man. <laughs> but that's not my reality. Like this sounds great. That God's spirit lives in me. That God's presence is with me. That God's power will give me the power. That God will transform me. And that God will make me a person who is patient, who is kind, who is loving. That God will transform me into the image of Jesus. That sounds great, and I agree with that, and I want that. 
But that's not my reality. I'm living discouraged. Because I feel like I'm blowing it. Day after day after day. I've got this sin that I can't shake. I've got this relationship that just pushes my buttons. I've got a circumstance in life that sucks and I want out from under. I'm discouraged. I feel condemned. I feel guilty. I want to change, but it's not happening. So I want to close with asking us this question. What keeps us from experiencing the change that God's spirit can work in our lives? What keeps us? I want to offer three things to you this morning. The first is that we don't often experience the power and the presence of God in our lives because we won't or we can't acknowledge how much we need God in our lives. We often do not experience the power of God because we fail to acknowledge that we actually need God in our lives. Somewhere along the line, we get this idea that the more we grow out of sin, like if I can just stop sinning, and if God could help me stop sinning, the more we'll grow out of our need for God. Now, we would never say it like that. We would never admit that. But so many of us live like that. If I could just get over this sin, if I could just stop sinning in this way, that eventually I would begin to change, and then naturally I would begin to live like God wants me to live, which is another way of saying that at some point, help me do it. Just do the things that God wants me to do, and I won't really need his spirit to help me do it. Because I am the problem, my sin is the problem, and if I could just get over my sin, then I would be all right. I want to tell you, you will never get over your sin. You will never get to a point in your life where sin will not be present in you. You will never get up into you will never get a point to a point in your life where you will not sin. It's just not true. It's not reality. The scriptures speak to that. Paul talks about that in Galatians 3. He begins that passage with calling the people that he's writing to fools. When's the last time somebody called you a fool? He says, are you so foolish that beginning in the spirit, you now think you can walk in the flesh? Paul reminds them, you, God brought you life through his spirit. Now you think you can live life on your own? You still need the spirit. And so many of us are frustrated because we're trying to do what Jesus has commanded us to do and called us to do. We're trying to experience the life that God has invited us to experience, and we're trying to do it on our own. We're trying to live it in our own strength. But a huge part of becoming like Christ is knowing that we will never outgrow our need for God's Spirit. The more that you grow into the image of Jesus, the more aware you are of how much you actually need Jesus. It's not a linear thing. It's, you don't graduate from one stage of Christianity to the next. 
You will need Jesus just as much when you are 90 years old as you will right now. Your need for Jesus and the power of God's spirit in you will never, ever diminish. We won't and we can't acknowledge how much we need God's spirit. And so many of us live without God's power. The second thing, we don't confess our sins and receive the forgiveness of God. We don't confess our sins and we fail to receive the forgiveness of God. I'm right here. I live under a cloud of guilt. I want to be perfect. I want to do everything right. And when I fail day after day after day, the devil feel ashamed. And I start listening to that lie from the devil. God's disappointed in me. God expects so much more from you. Why even say you're sorry because you know you're going to do it again? And we hide from God. And in shame, we keep our sin to ourselves. And over time, that removes us further and further from God's, from a relationship with God and the power that God offers us. It drives a wedge between us and God. But remember what John wrote in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, what's the promise? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But what else? And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Does that mean God makes us perfect? No. But that means that when we confess our sins and we acknowledge to God, I've, I've failed. I've sinned against you that God says, I will forgive you and I will restore you. Things between you and me will be made right again and you can experience my power. Confess it. Know that God hears you. Know that God loves you and know that no matter how much you sin, God will forgive. Third and last, when we do those things, when we acknowledge our need and we confess our sin, then move forward in following Jesus. Don't just sit. Don't just say, I've confessed it. I know God's working. Growth and change is a partnership with God. Your transfer. You have, been, you have been invited by God to participate in it. You have been invited by God to participate and to share in his work of transforming and changing you. Listen to this. Without him, we can't. Without us, he won't. Without him, you will never experience the change that you really want. But if you're not willing to participate in that with him, you will fail to receive his power. It's a partnership. Now, what does this look like? 
we commit to the process, again, of putting ourselves in the path of Jesus through practicing the spiritual disciplines like we talked about, by reading the scriptures and hearing the scriptures, by praying to God, fasting, you know, giving, like all of these things that we see in scriptures that are practices. They don't make us right with God. They don't hold any power in and of themselves, but they, they give us access to the power of God within us. That when we read our Bibles, when we listen to the truth being preached and taught, God's Spirit begins to transform the way that we think and begins to transform and change our perspective. When we pray, we join with what God is doing in our lives and in the lives of others. And God begins to reorient our heart and our choices and our decisions and our mind in the direction that He wants us to go. When we practice giving and serving, God begins us to God change, begins to transform and change us into people who are not just worried about what's good for us, but we start looking at what is good for other people. My wife and I, many of you know, before we started working for Soma, we worked in college ministry with an organization called Crew or Campus Crusade for Christ, and the organization's founder wrote this: "The Christian life." is so simple that we stumble over the simplicity of it. And yet, it is so difficult that no one can live it. The Christian life is simple. We have what we need here. We have God's Spirit living within us. And yet, if we try to do it on our own, we will fail over and over. And over again. Remember, God's power to change you and his presence with you is made available to you through the person of his spirit. And what we're going to do as we talk more and more about practicing the way of Jesus, we are going to remind each other that we need Jesus every moment of every day that living the life God has called us to live is impossible apart from the power of his spirit if you are a Christian here this morning I want to invite you in a minute to come to take a piece of the bread and to dip it in the cup we'll have a gluten-free station in the back for those who need it and as you come I want you to to remember that Christ has died, that Christ has risen, and that Christ is coming back again. And that that is your hope, that God will and can transform and change you. Remember that. And as you come, know that as you're coming, remembering that, you are proclaiming that to everyone else in this room that we all need the power of Jesus, that we all need change, and that God has promised to change us in relationship with each other. If you're not a Christian this morning, don't come. There's nothing special about this. This is a symbol. This is something that is an act that reflects what you truly believe and where your hope is. 
We would love to talk to you about that hope. We'd love to explain these things more to you. But this is something for Christians that we do every week because we need to remind ourselves and we need to proclaim to each other that the only reason that we're here is because Jesus has died for us. Jesus didn't stay dead, but he rose for us. And that one day Jesus is coming back for us to make us fully and eternally the people that he has created us to be. So come this morning and take this with that hope. God, we thank you that you have not left us alone in this world. We thank you that you have not said, here's the way to live. Here's what I want you to do. Now go do it. But that you have invited us to know you. To be in a relationship with you and to be changed by you. Thank you for your spirit who is with us, who is in us to experience and who is the power to experience that change. I pray that we would be not only individuals, but a community of people who live each and every day with a humbleness of heart, knowing that we don't have it all together, knowing that we aren't super spiritual people but that we are people in desperate, desperate need every moment of every day for your power to change. In Jesus' name.